All right, let's just pray uh, together before we start. Father God, I, uh, I just thank you so much that you're here with us. I thank you that um, your Holy Spirit is in us, that uh, we're gathered to just really hear from you. And Lord, I just uh, ask that you would somehow take uh, the things I have to share and, and uh, make it into something that is meaningful to each of the people in the room. And Lord, we do pray. We want to we want to get your word out there and we want to get love, tangible love that people will feel and understand to as many people as we can all around this world. And I pray that uh, you would use this conference as part of a, a launching process for that effort, Lord. And we pray that many would uh, come to know Christ all around the world because of uh, this conference. And uh, I just thank you. That, uh, that you're here with us. Amen. Uh, my name is Rick Sacra. Um, I'm a family physician. I serve with, with, uh, with SIM in Liberia in West Africa. Um, last year, uh, about this time, I, had, I was here at this conference, but I had just recovered from Ebola myself. Uh, some of you probably already know that. Um, so, uh, but I'm very grateful to God for that. Um, this talk really centers on Liberia uh, because that's where I work and that's the place I know. And so even though the Ebola situation has really mainly involved three countries, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, this talk is really focused on Liberia and I may not be able to answer a lot of questions or know a lot of information about the other two uh, countries. So just so you understand about my uh, limitations as a speaker. Um, so our objectives, um, that you can understand how mission hospitals face challenging situations like the Ebola epidemic and make a difference uh, in the lives of people and to understand the ways medical missionaries and ministries need to flex in the face of a crisis to keep our ministry relevant and impactful. Um, I like to give you something that's sort of simple to think about and to say, well, I, I can forget everything else, but at least if I remember this. And that's, um, in responding to a crisis, be proactive, get prepared, and focus on relationships. So those are the three things. Be proactive, get prepared, focus on relationships. Even in the midst of trauma and tragedy for many, God can bring some good. And we've really seen that through this uh, crisis situation. So I'm going to kind of organize my talk in three stages. Before the, before the crisis hit, kind of risk assessment, being pro proactive and being prepared, what you have that nobody else has, and then... During the crisis, and we'll talk about community engagement and talk about some, just some key takeaways from the way things went during Ebola. And then after the crisis, and we'll, we'll talk about Ebola survivor care, uh, kind of about our own attitudes about how things went. And then uh, I'm going to give you a little update about where we stand today in terms of uh, what's the situation, vaccines, and, and treatments. Um, I want to acknowledge a lot of people. It's a little... It's quite humbling, really, to be the only person on the schedule who's doing an Ebola talk. 
because so much amazing work was done over the past uh, year and a half in these three countries by some really incredible people. And I was not there full time. I was only going in a month at a time. And um, I wish Dr. John was here, Dr. John Fankhauser, who's an SIM missionary too, like me, uh, at ELWA Hospital. And he's really been there the most during the past year and has uh, done an incredible job. Dr. Debbie Eisenhut, uh, who was really the architect of our first um, Ebola treatment unit uh, there at ELWA, Dr. Kent and Amber Brantley. Uh, Kent was the first uh, doctor who had Ebola and really was helpful and inspiring to me. Uh, not only did he donate me uh, plasma to help me get through my case, but just in terms of uh, encouragement along the road. Uh, Nancy Wrightball, who also had uh, Ebola, she's back in Liberia now with her husband David, and they're in fact heading up our SIM team there. Uh, Dr. Jerry Brown, our medical director, who's been fantastic through this whole thing, has really uh, spearheaded a lot of the Ebola uh, response there at ELWA. Uh, and I, I just really appreciate uh, all the people who took care of me when I was sick, and, uh, and especially the Lord Jesus for his, uh, his watch care over me. Um, so before the crisis hits, when you're looking out at the horizon and you see that something might be coming, what do you do? When you see something brewing and you want to get ready, um, one thing is to understand that global medical work like we're in has risks. Um, there's all kinds of risks. There's uh, tropical diseases. There's things like Ebola. There's malaria. Um, so there's lots of medical risks. But there's also, you know, uh, just um, political risks, civil war, uh, kidnappings, and et cetera, and all those things. And we need to understand that there is risk in the work that we do, and we shouldn't be cavalier about that risk. Uh, we should recognize it for what it is. Um, we all really underestimated the risk of Ebola to healthcare workers at the beginning. Um, I had spoken personally with missionaries who had been in Congo and Uganda um, during Ebola outbreaks there, and they really said, you know, they really communicated that, well, hey, look, as long as you follow the precautions, the basic precautions, the risk is low. You know, and those outbreaks had never gone above, I think, 500 and some patients, you know, with, with Ebola was the biggest outbreak there had been uh, up until now, up until last year. And Doctors Without Borders, too, MSF, they, they really felt that, you know, hey, as long as you follow the protocols, you know, you're going to be okay. And this is, this is the, the news that was around. And I think nobody understood... Uh, the risk that was going to be involved in this outbreak. Because when you have 30,000 cases, a lot more things happen. A lot of unpredictable things happen that you don't have when you only have 100 cases or 200 cases. Um, so be real about the risk. This is from uh, the 1995 outbreak in, uh, in Congo. Um, Secondly, I, I would just say when you're looking at a risk situation, seek the Lord, get all the information you can, lay it before God, and follow your God-given convictions. Nobody can tell you, definitely this risk is too much and you shouldn't do it, but nobody can also tell you, oh, this risk is okay, you should go ahead and do that, 
that's really between you and the Lord. And each person is going to be different. It's quite personal. Um, so I think it's really important for us to all give each other room. You know, some person might seem very bold and go off and do something. And you might not be ready for that. And don't, you know, don't jump in if the Lord isn't speaking to your heart about that. And I, you know, I spoke with people who were getting ready to go overseas and I, you know, to the Ebola zone, if you will. And I said, you've got to, you've got to look this in the face. You know, a lot of healthcare workers have gotten sick. Are you prepared for that? If that might happen, are you okay with that? And I, I think that's real important. Obviously, we want to mitigate risk when we can. Reduce the risk uh, in responsible ways. One good thing that got set up after I went was that uh, pretty much most of the mission agencies that were working there had everybody go through a three-day training uh, that the CDC was putting on in uh, Alabama. And that was a great thing. We should have probably set that up a little earlier. might have been helpful. (laughs) Um, Another thing is to make sure with regard to medical risk, that you, take, that you have conversations with your family and the people you care about. It was very helpful that Debbie, oh, and by the way, my wife Debbie is here, and I didn't mention her in my first list. Yay! I love you, sweetie. She, she's, uh, she's been amazing through this whole thing. So. But, you know, before I went to Liberia, we had a good conversation, kind of a tough conversation, but a good conversation about that, hey, this, there's a risk here. And, you know, prayed together and kind of faced it a little bit. And it's very helpful when the problem does come. If you've had that conversation ahead of time, it helps, you know, that people feel like, okay, at least we had talked about it. At least it was something that had come up. Um, be proactive and be prepared. Um, I'm just, let me go ahead and tell the story first. So, um, now I wasn't in Liberia at this time, but at the end of March, we got the news that Ebola, that there was an outbreak in southern Guinea, and that it had been identified positively as Ebola. There were a few cases across the border in Liberia in April. Um, there, you know, there was obviously some concern about it, but... Then there was this, you know, a lot of pundits and experts were saying, well, in the past these, these outbreaks haven't gotten very big. They usually burn out. Uh, they last a few months and so forth. But um, Dr. Debbie Eisenhut was at ELWA Hospital at the time, and she was very proactive about this and said, look, I want to head up our Ebola response. I want to make sure we're ready for this thing because, you know, those, there are cases in Liberia how much does it take somebody to come from Upper Lofa to Monrovia? Nothing. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's very easy to do. People do it all the time. Um, we should be ready for this. And the hospital administration kind of said, okay, go ahead. <laughs> and at least gave her the go ahead. At least there was not uh, uh, a, uh, any barricades put in her way. And so she went ahead and made her plans and, you know, got all the information she needed, helped get us ready for this thing. If some of you were here last year and heard her speak, she told that whole story. Um, again, no, no lengthy deliberations or committees. There were committees working on this issue in Liberia from April, May, June, July, August. They were still talking in September about 
how should we get ready? And it was already upon us, you know. You have to be ready in a situation like this to take quick, uh, quick action. Um, she did, so she helped us set up our isolation unit, which was a little five-bed unit uh, in our chapel uh, building. And uh, she got every member of the staff trained, not just the nurses and the doctors, but every member of the staff trained, uh, janitors, uh, business office people, everybody got trained in how to do personal protection, how to do decontamination, how to use the bleach, how to mix the bleach, all those things. And uh, that was, you know, that was just very important to have everybody trained. Even before we got the gear, you can see she has them kind of ad-libbing with patient gowns and, and uh, bandanas. Even before we got the gear, we, we had everybody trained uh, in that process. And that was very helpful. She located partners who would be willing to work with us. Uh, Samaritan's Purse was very helpful in, uh, in providing uh, personal protective equipment and supplying us with some of that stuff. Uh, MSF, Doctors Without Borders, was really great about um, they, uh, they sent some people over to ELWA. They came and looked at our unit. They helped point out some weak spots and helped us make some changes. So find your partners. Uh, you know, get going, start working, and ask for help. Um, it's really helpful when you see something coming on the horizon. Um, if you're living and working in a setting like Liberia, you have something that nobody else has. You have something that the Bill Gates Foundation doesn't have. You have something that Doctors Without Borders doesn't have. You have something that the UN doesn't have. You have local knowledge. You're there on the ground. You have cultural competence. You have relationships within the community, within, with churches, with civic groups, with local leaders. And so that gives you immediate access to start something now. And this is one of the things that I, I notice is that, you know, a lot of people like, like again, we, we were looking up at Upper Lofa and thinking, if there are cases in Upper Lofa, they're going to come to Monrovia. A lot of people, a lot of the overseas health authorities were saying, oh, these Ebola epidemics, they always burn out. They don't usually, you know, but in the past they've been in very isolated places with no road access, out in little villages, and they, it was just a different situation. This one broke out on the border of three different countries, right on the border. So you suddenly had three people of three different nations with Ebola. And where are they each going to want to go? They're going to each want to go to their capital cities. And we all, those of us on the ground, looked at this situation and said, oh, this is going to spread. This is going to come to the capital. And, you know, you have that local knowledge and that local understanding that those people sitting in an office in Washington or someplace else don't have. And so, uh, based on that, we, you know, we started doing community education right away. Uh, SIM has a radio station there, ELWA Radio. We started putting programming on the air. Samaritan's Purse, who works very closely with us, was there on the ground, started doing, uh, going to different churches, meeting with pastors, doing uh, community and church education about Ebola uh, from that, that uh, early time period.
So let's shift gears to during the crisis. Um, community engagement is real important. When the crisis hits, again, you've got those relationships, local leaders, town chiefs, town elders, pastors or imams, whoever's in authority, whoever's in a position to influence opinions, you want to get in touch with those people and be working with them on how you're going to face this crisis. Because early on in the Ebola crisis, there was a huge amount of misinformation out there. People said it wasn't real. People said it was a myth, a hoax. People said it was invented by a company who was trying to sell medication or this or that. There, were, there was all kinds of misinformation out there. And if you can, again, reach those local opinion leaders, you can make a difference. Um, one thing we've learned in Liberia is often local leadership relationships are more important than knowing who's in charge at a, you know, at the, in the capital, if you will. Um, sometimes in, these, in, the, in the developing world, it doesn't matter what the people in the federal capital think. What matters is the person on the ground. It's more so those local relationships are really key. We found that there were oftentimes when the Ministry of Health was saying something or the national authorities were saying something and that's how they wanted it done. And that didn't matter. The local authorities were ignoring that. So, you know, the relationships that make a difference are the ones on the ground. Um, so at ELWA, what, what did our community engagement mean? Well, first of all, we, we opened an ETU right away. We tried to do, again, the community education about um, encouraging people to come in and get checked if they had symptoms. Um, the, uh, then, after the epidemic really started bubbling in Monrovia, uh, Doctors Without Borders was looking for a place to locate a unit, and they were having a lot of problems, because obviously these communities didn't want an ETU right in their community. You know, they were scared. What would this bring in? If the Ebola is there in our community, it's going gonna, it's gonna to spread all over the place. Um, and so ELWA was able to help. We actually, so we actually provided a location for the big uh, MSF unit. Again, the National Ministry of Health was approving that, wanted it to happen. The local chiefs were unhappy about it. This is the, uh, the big MSF3 uh, unit or ELWA3 unit that MSF ran. Uh, kind of in parallel with our slightly smaller one. Um, you know, when they started building this, the, the youth from the neighborhood were coming over, throwing rocks, making threats, saying they were going to burn the place down in the night. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And um, that was a really challenging situation. And, you know, there were a lot of conversations that happened, but SIM and ELWA's relationships with the community, even though um, they're not perfect, at least we have a relationship when we have a presence, we know the people, and we were able to, to work with them. And one real neat thing that happened when I was there in July, a good friend of ours, guy, a guy we've known for probably 20 years, who's a, a young man, well, mid-30s now, <laughs> uh, but we've known him since he was a teenager, and uh, he came and saw me and said, you know that the, uh, the youth leaders over in King Gray, the town next to ELWA, are really upset about this Ebola stuff. 
I've been talking with them. They're still angry. They're, they're still causing trouble. Why don't, we have, why don't we make a gesture? Why don't you make a gesture toward them, and I'll help facilitate that for you. And so we bought them. Uh, we bought them some buckets. We supplied some bleach for three months. And we helped them get set up as a community uh, with some of these buckets set out in public areas so that they could help with Ebola prevention in their own community. And that, you know, and he was able to help mediate that and to help settle down some of this, uh, um, you know, unrest that was going on. I mean, if you followed the news, there were places where people tried to go and do Ebola work uh, where they were met with violence. Uh, you know, people were killed in some communities, uh, in some areas, in other places they got tires slashed and, and uh, you know, windows broken out of cars, uh, out of vehicles when they came into a community. So having those local relationships and being able to broker those things is really important and helpful. And that's something that you, if you're there on the ground, um, you can do. You know, so this is one of the things I'm trying to say is that, you know, we often think, oh, gosh, in a crisis situation like that, we should leave it up to the big players, you know, the disaster response teams who come in and have all those resources. Um, but, you know, if you're somewhere on the ground long term, you actually have the key to helping make the whole response work. You have those local relationships. You have something that they don't have. And uh, it's really important. It's a really important resource uh, in that kind of a situation. So I'm just going to kind of run through some of the key things during the Ebola crisis that we saw. Uh, just a review of the basics about Ebola. Incubation periods 2 to 21 days. Though actually, in our experience, this is really 7 to 12. I mean, 90% of cases, the incubation period is 7 to 12 days. Um, routes of transmission, direct contact with blood or body fluids. Uh, it's not airborne, and this is not an aerosolized thing, uh, despite what you heard on the news last year. Um, males can transmit virus in semen for up to three to six months after recovery. You might have seen some headlines recently that say nine months, 12 months. Um, there are traces of nucleic acid present that long. But the latest case we have out is about five to six months out. Um, and that was only one. And other than that, it's, there haven't been any cases more than three months out. So it's probably three to six months is a reasonable ceiling for that window. Um, mortality rate of Ebola came down to as low as about 55% at most of the Ebola treatment units, which is still horrible, over half, but much better than the... 90% figures that people were throwing around at the beginning of the crisis. And that's basically because of good supportive care, IV hydration, uh, oxygen, some other basic supportive care, blood transfusions for people who needed it. Um, so some of this I covered in a talk I gave here at this conference a year ago. So if you're more interested in it, there's audio at uh, medicalmissions.com. But one of the key things that we noticed was that there was too much focus on Ebola and not enough focus on the other health situations in these countries. Um, it was very important to really try hard to keep health services open and operating during the crisis because a lot of hospitals and clinics closed down completely. 
Um, even when there were places open, a lot of people weren't, were afraid to go to the hospital because they were afraid, oh, that's the, you know, what if there's an Ebola patient there? Uh, and so we had actually more deaths due to malaria, typhoid, uh, appendicitis, women dying in childbirth. We had more deaths from those things than we did from Ebola during the Ebola crisis because of the health system shutdown. So, um, you know, this is Monrovia. We've got very heavily populated area, about a million and a half people. And there were periods, there were long periods of time where there was either no health facilities open or one or two barely functioning. Um, and one of the things I want to mention is this is not only just the librarians. They would bring in groups like CDC and other groups would come in and do infection prevention and control assessments on health facilities. And this was even going on as recently as July. So it definitely was happening when I was there in April. And I even saw some of it happening again in July where these groups were going around and doing surveys of clinics and hospitals. And if they felt that the facility was not up to snuff on all the checkmark items in their survey, they would shut them down. They would say, you guys have to close. We have to bring, we didn't, you don't have all the things you need. We've got to, you know, find these different things. Uh, you know, the, the bleach or the chlorhexidine or I don't know what they were looking for. Um, we've got to retrain your staff again because you're not following all the procedures, right? So we're going to close you down for a month while we do all this stuff. And, you know, from a public health standpoint, it's a real problem because you already didn't have enough health facilities functioning. And by that time, Liberia's epidemic was really winding down. We were either having no cases or one or two cases. So the Ebola risk was actually much reduced. And yet they were still closing down facilities to do new training and, and this and that. And uh, even that coming, you know, people coming from outside from the U.S. and from other places doing this kind of stuff. And it, it was uh, a little disturbing. Uh, a couple words about personal protective equipment. One key thing we learned is that it's a psychomotor skill. It's like driving a car. Um, you know, you have to do it. You have to practice it physically. You have to put on the suit and practice getting it on and taking it off um, repeatedly. It takes quite a bit of practice to get good at it. Um, another thing we learned about the decontamination process is that any time somebody got contaminated with blood or body fluids, that we needed to spray them down head to toe with bleach before they tried to get out of their suit. Because while you're getting undressed is the highest risk time. You get a little splash or a little, you know, a little fluid gets, gets on your face or gets somewhere while you're trying to get undressed. And doing this even with people who were not dealing with Ebola patients, like after a surgery or some other situation where you get contaminated Getting a full spray down first made a huge difference. We were not doing that in August. Uh, when I got sick from dealing with pregnant women who we didn't realize were, at that time, were Ebola infected, we made that change. And uh, after that, we didn't have any more uh, cases among staff. Another thing we learned is that we had to start doing universal triage, not only for patients, but for visitors and staff as well. Because first couple of days when you have Ebola, all, you'll, all you might have is a little low-grade fever. And you might feel well enough to go to work. And so, actually, at a lot of health facilities, people were coming to work sick and saying, oh, I just have a little fever. Uh, let me go to the lab. Why don't, 
why don't they check me for malaria, give me some IV fluids. And so a lot of healthcare workers were exposing other healthcare workers, going to work sick, and then at the end of the day saying, oh, I'm not feeling so great. And, you know, and it was a real problem. So we had to triage not only our patients, but also our staff and our visitors. Um, a couple other changes. Uh, initially, the CDC had said that somebody with Ebola would have a temperature of over 101.5. Uh, that got downgraded to 100.4 after, you know, again, observation of many patients. Frankly, at our facility, anybody with an abnormal temp, you know, 99 and up was considered at risk. Uh, we just found that you miss too many people if you set the threshold too high. Again, we talked about screening. Um, pregnant women were an interesting case. Uh, we had at least three pregnant women during the epidemic who did not show classic symptoms of Ebola and yet we're ill with it. Um, and uh, this actually has been published as well. Uh, this is a case from Sierra Leone where they documented that a woman, a pregnant woman who didn't have symptoms had a positive Ebola test. Um, so that's definitely an issue. I, I suspect that there are other people with um, altered immune systems, like the elderly, poorly controlled diabetics, newborns, AIDS patients, who may also uh, have atypical symptoms with Ebola. This is not something that's been studied, but it, it uh, would be interesting to look into. So it does, it does shed some caution on the whole issue of screening and how you identify uh, cases. Um, the... Uh, in August of 2014, we started having significant numbers of survivors coming out of the units. And, and really having survivors became a key, I think, to ending the epidemic in Liberia. Because these people were able to come out and bear witness to what was going on in the ETUs, that Ebola was real, they had had it, and they were able to do interviews with the press and this kind of thing, and they made a huge difference. And so... The MOH, the Ministry of Health in Liberia, was actually quite intentional about coordinating the release of survivors. They would make sure all the, that the press was there. Uh, they would make people wait and come in and, and uh, get discharged all at once so that you could have a little ceremony. Everybody would get a certificate that said, I'm, I've been tested twice, 24 hours apart. I'm free of Ebola to try and help their communities to receive them back. Uh, that was a real challenge at times. Um, but then, you know, these people would go on TV. Some of them were willing to go on TV or go on radio and give interviews. And this just helped so much with the whole thing of, you know, what's going on within the ETUs. There was a lot of uh, rumors going on. Oh, my goodness, they're experimenting on our relatives. They're harvesting organs to send overseas. There were all kinds of um, rumors going around. And this was very helpful in, you know, putting some of those things to rest. Um, so after the crisis was winding down, what, uh, what were some of the things that we saw God, uh, God use? Well, first of all, um, I want to talk a little bit about Ebola survivor care. And this, this really was pioneered by um, Dr. John Fankhauser, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is Dr. John with uh, someone actually who works at the hospital who survived Ebola. Um, and this included a, a range of services that we actually provide free 
to Ebola survivors using uh, donated uh, resources. Um, chronic disease management for some of the complications of Ebola. Um, uveitis is quite common where the, the, the eye becomes inflamed and you lose vision. I actually experienced that complication. Um, and with early treatment with steroids, it can recover fully. But if you don't treat it early, uh, it can lead to blindness. Um, many people have our problems with arthritis, uh, nerve pain, neuropathy, uh, and then mental health stuff, depression. A lot of these people have had huge losses, and uh, having counseling and, and uh, depression management services is really important for them. Um, uh, Dr. John was able to get a couple different subspecialists over. He had an ophthalmology team come in and uh, bring some equipment that they left, actually. So he's able to do these uh, pretty high-end uh, assessments for uveitis now. Um, that was the team, actually, from Emory. The ophthalmologist team from Emory came over for a week uh, this past April. And then in July, he actually had a rheumatologist there for a week who was able to do some assessments on people. And this was just a great example of how subspecialists can come in for a short term and make a difference and uh, really help with a long-term ministry. Um, finally, we have, a, we have a new component that we started in July of uh, using a trauma healing curriculum that the American Bible Society um, has developed. Um, and they've done a very nice adaptation of it specifically for the Ebola situation. So it's, it's got a bunch of stories in it that they use. It's story-based. So it's got biblical stories and then West African stories in the curriculum. And the stories are around Ebola. They're, they're, they're uh, relevant to it. It's a really wonderful program. I um, you know, went through some of these materials. I, I wasn't able to actually take part in the training uh, because it's for group leaders, for people who are going to lead uh, trauma groups, trauma healing groups. But I was able to look over the materials, and it really did touch me. Um, a lot of the, like one of the things they had in there was they actually have the participants write a lament, like based on like the lamentation, the book of lamentations of Jeremiah or some of the Psalms that are laments, and in which they really pour out their losses and their grief and their complaint, if you will, their complaint against God. And it was so interesting because the Liberians don't feel that that's... Um, you know, if you ask a Liberian, can you get angry with God? They're like, ooh, no, that wouldn't be good, you know? And it was so interesting to see them really getting real with the Lord about what they'd been through. And I think, I think the program is really wonderful that way because it doesn't just superficially say, oh, God's going to take care of you and make you better. It, it, it lets people get very real with God and present their, their, uh, their losses to the Lord, and I think it helps them start a process of, of mourning and grieving and healing with the Lord over, over time. This is the, the training uh, going on. It was very interactive, all done in, in small groups. Um, some people have asked me, do you have any regrets uh, about going? Uh, I definitely have no regrets. Um, you know, the the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ compels us, because, because I, 
I am convinced of this, that one has died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Um, you know, we have, in our society, it's hard to acknowledge, you know, in our American society, the idea that you'd be willing to risk your life for somebody else is not something that people can accept. And yet, our Lord is the uh, ultimate model of that. Um, let me just talk about a few other things, though, as far as looking back, retrospect. Um, uh, I spoke with Dr. Fankhauser a couple weeks ago, and he... he had some interesting reflections back on our ministry over the past year at ELWA. He, he thought there was opportunity for more uh, early community involvement. You know, there were certain programs that the government had kind of committed and said they were going to put in place, like contact tracing. So this is the idea that when somebody gets sick with Ebola, you get to know who the people are who are at risk, who had contact with that patient while they were sick and who might come down with it, and then you begin a process of monitoring those people. And, you know, the government had that set up kind of in theory initially, and we all kind of said, oh, well, they're taking care of that. But initially they really weren't. And, you know, he felt that we could have used some of the people who were doing, say, AIDS education or community AIDS outreach uh, in the past. We could have used some of those people to do uh, contact tracing. Um, Another area that was really tough was burial assistance and ambulance provision. And, and we, we did not get involved in those things directly and probably looking back on it could have, especially early on uh, in the epidemic. Um, so let me just give you a little update on the situation. So right now, uh, Liberia is considered Ebola-free. We, our last case was uh, discharged from the unit July 20th. Um, Sierra Leone's last case was actually discharged August 24th. Oh, sorry, let me, anyway, ignore Guinea for a second. Um, Sierra Leone, so Sierra Leone is supposed to be declared Ebola-free in two days if, uh, if they don't have any more uh, cases. So that's really good. They're six weeks out now. Um, so that probably means that any, you know, any local chains of transmission that were ongoing have been interrupted, which is wonderful, wonderful news. Now, Guinea continues to smolder along. Mainly, only one or two districts are having cases. Uh, three weeks ago, they had three cases. Two weeks ago, they had three cases. Last week, they only had one case, and the one case last week was actually the, the, an infant of a mother who died of Ebola the week before. Um, so these cases are all, you know, are mainly connected with one another. There are still 141 high-risk contacts in Guinea, so the risk that they still have some cases to come is probably pretty high. Um, but this is much better. You know, this is, this, is, this is really amazing progress, and I'm very thankful to the Lord that he's uh, allowed it to come uh, this far. Um, so uh, I wanted to share some updates about um, drug trials and vaccine trials. Um, You know, it's, it's been a little funny that the drug companies took so long to get through all the bureaucratic approvals required for drug trials that by the time they got everything ready and all the I's dotted and T's crossed, cases were coming down and they were kind of like, oh, not enough cases. 
we were all happy about not enough cases. But anyway, um, there was a trial in, uh, in, I think, multiple countries, but definitely in Liberia, of brinsidafovir, which was abandoned by the company Chimerix because they weren't having enough cases to get good data. Again, uh, ZMAP is in the same situation. There's a, there's a trial protocol in place, but they're not having enough cases. Um, there is a trial of favipiravir going on in Guinea, um, and we should be getting some data soon. I was a little surprised when I was searching for it that I didn't find anything uh, really published yet. I think they're still working on it. Um, TKM Ebola, which is another drug, there, there was a trial started, and actually that was stopped because, of, because it, it became apparent that it was not effective. So um, that one fizzled out. Um, convalescent serum, the idea of using serum from a patient who's recovered and, and making use of their antibodies and giving that to uh, patients who are sick uh, is a popular idea. Uh, again, unfortunately, it took them all the way until January to get that trial moving in Liberia. And by then, the cases were, count was down, so they had to move into Sierra Leone. Um, they are going to have some numbers for us on that. They did, they did get enough cases, I think, in Sierra Leone that there, are, there is going to be some data coming out about it. But uh, they haven't done all the data analysis yet. Um, so right now, the, I mean, the bottom line on drug trials right now is that we do not have, you know, that there's no treatment that's, that's recognized as being effective for Ebola except supportive care right now. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm not sure about that. I don't know about it. Um, it's not published. No, he hasn't published it yet. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know about it. I don't know about it. It's really hard to, you know, it's hard to, I mean, there was a lot of stuff about selenium. All the patients in RETU were getting selenium uh, during, you know, I, I was on it. Um, again, no, nobody, until we get good data on some of these, we're, we're, we're in a bit of a tough spot. So, now, vaccine, the, the situation is, is uh, actually much better. Uh, there's some good news on the vaccine front, which I'm very excited about. So um, there are four vaccines being tested, but there's really only two that are in full, you know, f uh, phase three clinical trials where they're actually testing the vaccine um, in patients who are at risk of Ebola. The, the, the trial that has revealed, that has... Um, released positive results is this one they did in Guinea, and they called it a ring trial. So when there was a case of Ebola, they would take all the contacts and vaccinate them. And in fact, they'd do two layers of contacts. So if person A got Ebola, I would make a list of all their contacts, and then I would go to all those people and make lists of all their contacts. And I'd vaccine, vaccinate two rings around the case. And they, they randomized clusters, if you will, or cases. So if they had a case over here in this village, they would, the whole group would either get vaccine right away or they'd, get, they'd have a delay of 21 days and then get vaccinated. And that was the trial they did. So they compared immediate vaccination versus a 21-day delay. And what they found was that now they, anything that happened in the first 10 days after the randomization, they, they called washout because 
you figure if somebody, somebody could already be incubating Ebola, probably the vaccine isn't going to prevent, the, you know, isn't going to treat them if they already have it. But what they found is that once you let that 10-day washout go, they had about 2,000 patients total involved in the trial, so roughly 1,000 in each arm. I think that's right anyway. Um, and they had 16 cases in the group where they waited three weeks. And they had zero cases after 10 days again in the group where they vaccinated immediately. So that was quite a difference, 16 versus zero. And so this is considered to be a positive result. Um, and so they've now switched. They're not doing any randomization anymore. They don't have a three-week delay group anymore. Everybody's put in the immediate is, you know, so they're continuing the trial in Guinea. Anytime there's a new case, they're doing this, this double ring strategy, but they're vaccinating everybody immediately. And, uh, I mean, I think that's part of why we're finally getting to, uh, down to, to near zero cases. Um, there's a second vaccine that was, that's been involved in a couple trials. I know in Liberia, it was in a randomized study where they were using both vaccines, this, uh, GlaxoSmithKline one. Um, by the way, and what, the, the way you read this, um, that's recombinant vesicular stomatitis virus. So this is a, an animal disease, a disease that cows get. And they took that virus and they stuck a little piece of Ebola RNA in it that codes for the outer protein of the Ebola, the surface protein. Um, so it is a live virus, but it doesn't contain the whole Ebola genome or anything. It just has this one protein that it, you know, that it produces. And then this is um, chimeric adenovirus 3, again, with ZEBOV is uh, Zaire Ebola. I guess the V is virus. I don't know. Anyway, I don't know exactly what everything stands for, but that's the idea. Um, so there are two other vaccines that are in phase one testing, um, so, but that's, you know, we really have some, some hope on the vaccine front that we probably have an effective vaccine. Nobody knows how long that immunity lasts, but at least if you can use it, this is a kind of, this is kind of a unique strategy. I mean, we think of vaccines as being something that you give everybody. This is kind of a unique strategy to wait for an outbreak and then vaccinate contacts, but it really does seem to work. Uh, and it may be an option for Ebola because the funding may not be there to vaccinate all, you know, half a billion uh, or all, you know, all half a billion people in, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa uh, with, with this vaccine. But by using it during outbreaks, you could have a significant impact on uh, how long outbreaks last. All right. Well, thank you very much. And... Uh, We have about 15 minutes for questions, so feel free. That's about people uh, relapsing after they've had Ebola, and I never followed that up or anything, but was that just what? Um, so there, there was this case of a nurse in the U.K., Pauline Cafferkey, who developed viral meningitis about a year after her recovery from Ebola. Uh, and that was related to Ebola virus. So Ebola virus clearly has the ability to hide out in places like the eye, like the male genital tract, like the brain. Um, and so, yeah, that's a problem. I don't think it's a public health problem. None of these 
people have had, like Pauline didn't have virus in her body fluids. Um, and there have been a couple other relapses in, documented in West Africa as well, meningitis cases, for instance. Um, the, uh, but again, you know, we're, we're talking about 30,000 cases and we've, we've had a few relapses. So it's probably not like a terribly common event. But this virus definitely does like to hang around. You know, I mean, not, I mean, chickenpox likes to hang around. That's why we have shingles. So, you know, it's, it's not unprecedented. I think that's still up for grabs. Um, certainly the uveitis, uh, in Ian Crozier's case, it was documented that there was viable virus in the eye. Uh, so this is probably not an autoimmune process. This is, but, you know, what I would say is that it's that the virus, the virus is in the globe. It's in there. But the immune system is not, you know, there's no blood flow in there. And so eventually, later on, after the person recovers, antibody levels go up. The immune system is working hard to find the virus, and it discovers it there later. You know, and so you have now an active immune response against virus. Um, now, people do have uh, fluid in their joints, but I haven't, people have not been anxious to stick needles in them. Um, <laughs> to document whether there's, I mean, they've talked about it. I know they talked about it at Emory because I know they had a couple people with effusions. But they, um, I think it's just all the hassle you have to go through to, you know, you have to go in the ETU and get all gowned up and do it. It's quite a deal. And if the person's not acutely ill with it. So they haven't documented yet, we haven't documented yet whether the, whether the uh, arthritis is live virus or is more of an autoimmune process. Um, you know, the trouble is that the viral little bits of the virus can hang around, around for a very long time, even after viral replication is over. So, in a sense, it doesn't, it's not really autoimmune. It may just be an immune response to little bits of Ebola virus. But I think nobody knows about the other ones. But certainly the eye, there's live virus there. Well, this is a real challenge right now, and I, I don't think the answers are are obvious yet. And and people are kind of uh, feeling their way through this. You know, what do we do now? We haven't had a case in four months. The WHO has declared us Ebola-free. Do we still have to be sprayed down every time? Do we still have to be sprayed down every time that we get a little blood or mucus on us, or can we loosen up a little bit? And I think that's a, I mean, the answers aren't clear to that, and I, I think it's a real good question. I don't, I don't have an answer for that, unfortunately. I wish I did. I mean, people are definitely not going to go back to the way we used to do things and to be as casual as we were before, probably, about blood and body fluids. Um, but 
you know, there's, there's a lot of expense to doing the full PPE thing. It's very expensive, so. Public health response. I'm just kind of curious. Samaritan's Purse introduced um, for family units, personal protective equipment, and that became kind of a means to stem some of the spread as well at one point in Liberia. Are you noticing that the public health system has been strengthened as a result, or is everything still kind of in disarray? Um, I think Liberia's public health system is not is not there yet. I think it's going to, you know, it's going to take a lot of training and a lot of education and a lot of, and I think the other thing is I think by the time the, the whole community, the whole community centers thing got going, the epidemic was already trending down. And so I don't think it got widely implemented in a lot of locations. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think we've got a long ways to go from what I've seen. I think we got a long ways to go. Yeah. I've, I've seen some articles in the last two or three days where uh, they're, they're saying that there may have been as many as three times as many uh, Ebola cases as were reported. Is that, you know, what is the significance of finding that out? I mean, there were a lot of cases that either they either died or they right. took care of the, or they recovered were never part of the reporting system, and having been to Liberia, I know how difficult it must have been to get any kind of decent reporting, but what would be the significance of that, if that's true? Um, well, I th- you know, I think there's no doubt. Everybody has always said that the numbers we're getting are big underestimates. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I mean, I, you know, I think the fact is that nobody understood how big... You know, the fact that Ebola, you know, and some people are still scratching their heads and saying, did the virus change? But from what I'm hearing from the virologist, the virus didn't change. It was just that this was a unique and different situation than where it had been before. Uh, but, yeah, I think, I think it's much bigger, and I don't, I don't have a way to get it at real numbers. But I think it was much bigger than, than, than the numbers look. And, I, you know, that, I mean, I guess that tells you what a huge humanitarian catastrophe it was, but I think the other thing we also have to keep in mind is that we lost a lot more people to other things during this crisis, too, because in all three countries, but especially Liberia and Sierra Leone, major health system shutdowns during the crisis. Well, I work in Buchanan, and we basically did, we had a couple of Ebola cases, but they were from outside, but we had thousands die from typhoid, malaria, and, and other causes, because all of Basically, all the health clinics were closed. Yeah, it just, and, um, but I did have one other question. Did you or Nancy or, or Kent uh, receive or give any kind of serum uh, therapy? Yeah, Kent, Kent gave serum to a lot of us, actually. I got serum from Kent. I, um, both Nancy and I have donated. I think, I think Nancy's got used. I don't know if mine did or not. But, you know... Once they got far enough along, it, uh, Emory just started having a bank, and they just would do- we would donate proact- you know, proactively ahead of time, and just it would just go in the bank. Um, so I don't know, you know, nobody knows now. Now it's more like giving blood, like you don't know when it goes out. <laughs> so. All right, other questions.
trip to Sierra Leone got canceled eight days before we left. Um, we're going back. What would you, what precautions would you give us now that we're going heading back? Um, are you doing medical work, direct clinical care? Um, well, I think you need to, if you're doing clinical work, I mean, you're close enough, and there's still active cases in Guinea. I mean, I think you want to be fully trained in the use of personal protective equipment. You know, you want to know how to suit up and how to do that if you have a suspected case. And then you have to find out in the region you're in in Sierra Leone what they're doing. Because, you know, again, if it's, in a, if it's in a district that never had Ebola at all, maybe they're not, you know. But you need to figure out, you know, when you see a case that might be a suspected case, how you're going to deal with that. Um, your risk is probably pretty low at this point because they haven't had a case in, in, uh, in six weeks. So, but I think you need to be prepared because, like, we had an outbreak we had been declared Ebola-free in May, and then we had an outbreak in July of just seven cases. Very small. So you have to, you know, you have to be ready for it. Yeah, but we were supposed to go then in July, and then they said, no, no, we have had some more outbreaks in 42 cases. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be fully ready for it. But, I, you know, I think your risk is, is obviously way down from what it was six or nine months ago. Yeah, go ahead. What have you seen of the continuous effects on communities and on um, just the structure of this, the city after, after? Um, Well, people are really bouncing back. Um, they're, you know, kids are going to school again. Churches are doing things again. It's funny. It's been funny, like in July. Now, I haven't been there since July. So, you know, and they still had Ebola cases first week of July. So they got re-declared Ebola free. But even in July, people were like, you know, they'd look around and they'd go, shake my hand, man. (laughs) (laughs) You know, because, I mean, during the crisis, nobody was touching at all. Nobody was shaking hands. Nobody was hugging. It was all just, hi, how you doing? Um, So, you know, you're starting to see people, like, loosen up a little bit. Um, I mean, I think it's in neighborhoods where there was a major where there were major losses, um, you know, I think, I mean, it's still, man, you, you, you meet the people who lost half their family, and they're still, you can see it on their faces. I mean, there, there is still a lot of healing and recovery to do. But, but some, you know, it was very spotty. There were, there were whole communities that basically didn't have any cases. So it was very spotty. And I think those communities are really getting back to, really getting back to normal. Okay, great. Thank you.